sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Every year, the Seventh-day Adventist Church sponsors a religious freedom dinner on Capitol Hill in our nation's capital. And this year, we have several honorees. Uh, I'm not going to be able to attend personally, but I'm very happy to be able to interview those who have dedicated their lives to religious freedom who are being honored. And among those is Asma Uddin, who has a, a book coming out this summer called when Islam is not a religion, inside America's fight for religious freedom. Asma, thank you for joining us on Freedom's Ring today, and, and congratulations on the honor. Well deserved. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I want to start not so much with the issues that you address in the book, but you have been working in the religious freedom sector, if you will, for many years. And here in America, that's largely dominated by Christians and Christian organizations, and you're a Muslim woman. Any insights, you know, perspective for us on your experience working within what's predominantly a Christian community fighting for religious freedoms as a Muslim? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been an interesting journey. Um, I think for me, especially starting off in this field as a young attorney, pretty much fresh out of law school, um, it was both an opportunity to learn about religious freedom as a philosophy and the jurisprudence of it, but of course, because of the environment that I was working in, a lot of the, the cases and ideas that I was learning about were happening with respect to uh, Christian claims for religious liberty. Um, and I think that was an opportunity, one, for me to learn about the various religious beliefs and um, concerns that uh, some Christians have with, for instance, the government and various government actions. Um but also to to understand from that sophistication and that level of it was very sort of established high level lawyering and the arguments and the ideas and for for someone like me who is a Muslim and is part of a relatively you know less established and less sophisticated religious community when it comes to questions of religious liberty lawyering I think it was just interesting for me to see that contrast and to begin to think about ways of sort of translating some of those techniques over to concerns that were more relevant to Muslims. Well, and, you know, as we were talking before we started the show, um, the Church State Council, we've been representing Muslims primarily in employment cases, and and there are some very significant religious freedom challenges faced by Muslim Americans. Do you want to highlight a couple of those? Sure. I mean, so my book, uh, When Islam is Not a Religion, actually gets into a number of different areas where we're seeing some emerging and existing threats to American Muslims' religious freedom. And importantly, in the way that the book is framed and the way I talk about these issues is really just that the specific cases might involve Muslims, but the threat is, impacts everyone because the nature of religious freedom is that when, when it is watered down for one group, it's going to ultimately affect the way religious freedom uh, impacts and protects much wider range of religious practice. And so, you know, this claim of Islam not being a religion is really a way in, of saying that, well, Muslims don't have religious liberty under the First Amendment. And this idea was first articulated in explicit form, as far as I know, uh, in Islamic Center Murfreesboro case that happened in 2010 in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. 
And the, the case took place in the immediate aftermath of the Park 51 debacle in New York City, also known as the Ground Zero Mosque, uh, which it was misnamed by certain people. And then it was also the beginning then of uh, just a nationwide controversy against the building of houses of worship by Muslims. And it's a controversy that continues to this day. And we continue to see cases where mosques in the, the process of seeking permits for the construction or expansion of the facilities are facing pretty widespread um, hostility on the part of local community members. And uh, oftentimes that seeps into the various sort of commissioners and zoning officials as well. So building houses of worship and land use generally is a big area of concern. We see that with, uh, we see concerns related to religious arbitration. Uh, to date, there have been 43 states that have enacted or attempted to enact some form of what they call anti-Sharia laws, um, which mm-hmm. in practice in sort of less um, sensational terms are what it actually means in practice is that they are trying to treat Muslim religious arbitration as different from other types of religious arbitration that we know other religious groups are taken. And over the course of sort of the development, the advocacy that's happened around these, uh, a lot of these laws are now written to sort of mask the focus on Sharia and Muslims specifically and to expand it to some sort of broad, vague notion of foreign law. But again, it's an emerging threat as the people behind this law have made very explicit that intention there is not just to get these laws enacted, but to also to, to specifically create an environment um, that is broadly hostile to Muslims. And so there's like a much broader agenda here beyond simply the enactment of these laws. So that's one. So, area. you know, one issue I know our listeners are going to be interested in, and uh, you've touched on it with the proliferation of state laws introduced, you know, essentially anti-Sharia laws, I think would be enormously, most people when they hear about Sharia, they have only the vaguest notion of what it's about and what Muslims might want to do in terms of applying their own culture, their own religion to various contexts. The one that I think I'm most familiar with would be in the family law context when it comes to dissolution of marital relationships where a faith tradition may provide different kinds of rules and approaches than our secular laws would. Is that one area where Muslims want to invoke their own faith tradition to resolve disputes? Yes. And so oftentimes religious arbitration does occur in the context of personal law issues, right? So as you noted, divorce, inheritance, um, things like that. And specifically, the way that religious arbitration is a framework in which it's permitted in the U.S., if when it comes to criminal legal issues, it's only applicable in the civil uh, space. And even there, there are certain exceptions. For instance, if it's uh, questions related to child custody or the welfare of children, um, there are various limitations that states have enacted to sort of make sure that the state is more involved there and that it isn't left entirely to the private parties to to arrange. And so it's important when you think of these religious arbitration for one, when you think of Sharia, um, Sharia arbitration specifically, A, Sharia itself as a term, as a religious term, deals with something much broader. It's, it's about the broader principles and morality and following God's path. The better term is actually called fiqh, which is the actual jurisprudence, which is um, 
recognized unanimously across all Muslims across the world that it is something that's a product of human interpretation and therefore could be fallible. And um, there's plenty of dissent about the various rulings and what is proper and what isn't. And so I think that distinction is an important one as well, because it isn't some sort of literal understanding of God's law and it's like, you know, immutable. It's it's actually something that has a lot of dissent and debate that's, that's built into it. And then when it comes to that, it's just, you know, there's all these various strictures that, that when religious arbitration is allowed for Muslims as it is for other religious groups, it happens within the context of, yes, you know, what the, it's sort of a balanced look at what the U.S. public policy is and what those concerns are on the part of the government to maintain uh, neutrality and fairness and equality among the, the various parties. But also to, it also has within it a recognition that for a full sort of expression of your religious beliefs, there should be some space in which we can think through our personal arrangements in light of our religious beliefs. And so in those narrow circumstances in which the, in which US law permits it, even then when you go and you can have sort of you arbitrate your matters and you have your final decision, you have to take it to a civil court, secular court to enforce that decision. And then the sure. second court has to check for neutrality, for fairness, for voluntariness. And so it's important to understand the broader framework here and and, and also the fact that, that the U.S. legal system to date has done an excellent job of both providing this freedom and also regulating and preventing any potential abuses. I want to go back to the core concept of your book, When Islam is Not a Religion, and the case you mentioned from Tennessee where that was argued. Can you explain how that argument is made and the significance of it? Yeah, so in that specific case, it was made very explicitly. I mean, those were the precise words that were used. But, you know, sort of like, Islam is not a religion, comma, it's it's a dangerous political ideology and is therefore not deserving protections under the First Amendment. So in that specific case, because it involves the building of the House of Worship, in which case there are, there's a federal statute called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act um, and other similar statutes that give religious organizations special protection when they seek to build or expand their existing facilities. It was the idea was, well, these special protections don't apply to this specific case because, in fact, mosques are uh, Trojan horses that are planted in American suburbs through which extremists infiltrate in the U.S. and plan their domination of the country. In that specific case, Joe Brandon, who was the attorney, was permitted by the court to actually engage in some pretty preposterous questioning over the course of a six-day hearing in which he asked various witnesses, including county officials, questions like, you know, Muhammad had sex with a six-year-old girl. What do you call something like that a religion? And various sort of like really preposterous and insulting things as the members of the mosque were sitting in the audience Whereas just this sort of these statements and misinformation that they're fed about the, the religion is sort of propagated and put out as a way of sort of shocking the witness and saying that, well, it's something this insane and evil and wouldn't this be more properly defined as outside the bounds of religion and outside the bounds of something that we as Americans want to protect? It sounds like outside of the protected uh, status of a courtroom, it was just a pure indulgence and defamation. Absolutely. And it's quite shocking, in fact, that the judge even allowed it to go on for as long as it did. I don't think any of the judges I appear before in California would have allowed that kind of questioning. But then this was Tennessee. It was not California. So the land use issue has been a real problem, not just for the Muslim community, but it seems as though government in general has become much less appreciative of the role and the contributions that religion makes in the community. But I think there's much less appreciation in some circles. 
that religious liberty has to be for all of us, or none of us really enjoy it. And I wonder, in the time we have remaining, Asma, if you could address that that simple premise that if religious liberty doesn't include all of us, we're all at risk. Absolutely. And that's uh, sort of the point that I make in the book, sort of the twin point, the corollaries. On the one hand, there are and I talk about these threats by the government and by broader secularizing forces, right? So it's something that affects many religions, not just Islam. And I think oftentimes, actually, people overlook the effects that's happening on American Islam. And that's something I talk about as well. But in this sort of mutual struggle to protect the space of religion in the public space, you also see all the same people who are so worried about that incursion on into religion by secularism pretty much paving the way and creating space in which to give the government the ability to come in and limit religious freedom. And what they don't understand is exactly what they're doing with respect to which Muslims is creating a space that will give the government what it needs to do in order to come and limit the religious freedom of the precise proponents of this argument. And so it's just sort of a moment to reflect and to think about the broader trends and to understand how it all fits together. And it's very important that religious communities work together to protect a viable and robust space for religion in the public space. You know, it strikes me in closing that power is so seductive. Our constitutional arrangements were created at a time when no one religion in America had a real dominance of power. And there were so many diverse denominations that they essentially navigated a kind of government neutrality and protection for the freedom of all. But as certain Christian groups felt like they had dominant power, they abandoned the separation of church and state, and they're pushing church and state together. But what happens, as you point out, when the balance of power shifts and they're on the receiving of a heavy-handed government? So... Yes, religious freedom for one and all. And again, congratulations to you. Your honor at the Liberty Dinner is well-deserved. Thank you for your contributions and commitment to religious freedom. Our guest, Asma Udin, her new book, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, will be out this summer. Look for it. As we close, remember, friends, at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help workers suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at www.churchstate.org, churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.